As you're turning in your Bible to Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, I want to give a quick little, make a quick little high-level note. It's not germane to the sermon per se, but it is still one of those points that needs to be pointed out because of the broader context of biblical uh, theology and such. But if you engage much with modern scholarship, or if you engage much with people who are influenced by modern scholarship, it's fairly uh, in vogue now to deny the penal nature of Christ's substitutionary atonement. That they will say that the, the forensic language that we've used throughout Protestant uh, history is anachronistic that the, the language of saying justification is a legal declaration, that that, that that supposes a high-level civil legal system that, that is simply foreign to the minds of the biblical readers and would have been foreign to the mind, therefore, of Scripture. So we should jettison the whole model. And they say that kind of stuff, and you just, uh, uh, and you're feeling overwhelmed. Well, let me tell you, it's hogwash. Okay, it is true that no one had quite the, the technically detailed legal system that we have, you know, inherited from English Scottish law, but I assure you, in the first century, Rome had imposed over its empire a pretty refined legal system. But more than that, the idea that God is judge and you stand before him. That language, judge, that is a legal courtroom picture, is it not? And the language of the courtroom, with its declarations, pronouncements, judgments, is pervasive in Scripture. So don't let anyone slick talk or fast talk you out of it, okay? So pervasive is the concept of the penal code, the penal systems, whatever, that it's even in the Old Testament. You find it throughout. And today's passage is one such place where the entire picture here, the entire episode here is essentially a courtroom case. Okay? So, whoever says we need to jettison the notion of penal substitutionary atonement is trying to sell you a false bill of goods. Okay? There we go. That's the preface. That could have been a sermon. Should I just say amen? amen. <laughs> All right. So, you know, you're not that lucky. I'm excited about this passage. All right. But first, we're going to read it together. Okay? So, uh, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? 
answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for what you communicate, and for how you seek us out, how you address us, how you seek to snap our attention out of it, and that you would indeed remind us of your goodness. We thank you for all of this, and we ask that we would even now repent of our sins and turn in faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So today begins the third of the three oracles of Micah. The first oracle was from chapters 1 through 2. And then we spent the bulk of our time in this book on the second oracle, which goes from chapter 3 through chapter 4 and then through chapter 5. And now we come to the third and final oracle, which takes us through chapter 6 and 7. And you see the introduction of a new oracle in that language, in in that famous word, here, which is repeated at the beginning of chapter 1 and chapter 3 and now chapter 6. He's introducing a new section, so you need to understand he's not just linearly building upon what came before. He's sort of taking them back again to square one from another angle because the Lord is seeking to win the hearts and minds of his people. And this courtroom scene we see here, you need to understand, is not the courtroom scene of a judge ready to sentence a guilty offender. Rather, this is a conflict mediation scene. The Lord is wanting to reason with, dispute with, an aggrieved par- as an aggrieved party, the aggrieving party, his people. Indeed, if you look at verse 2 here, the Lord has an indictment against his people. That is the same word that means dis- to dispute It's the same word that's used very famously in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us 
Reason together, except that word is actually the word dispute. So the Lord here is doing the same thing as in Isaiah. He's, he's wanting to have a discussion. He wants to, quote unquote, fight it out with his people. Because he loves them. And he's seeking his people. In this passage, in this court case, you hear three voices. You hear the voice of the prophet. You hear the voice of God, and you even hear the voice of the people, so to speak, as the, as the prophet puts to word the sentiment of the would-be worshipers of Israel. And you see the four-part movement of this passage where the Lord summons witnesses. He summons his people. He issues an indictment. He makes a case. And there's a rebuttal or a response from his people, followed by a rebuttal from then the Lord. You see that movement. But, but in its nutshell, what is happening here? Well, to understand what the Lord is doing here, we simply need to step away and step into and think about things in our own life. How many times have you been exasperated with your spouse? Exactly right. There you go. There we, that's enough said. Where there are expectations, there are demands. You can't, I mean, you, you can't be a mind reader, but yet they act like they expect you to be. To have anticipated exactly what they want in the exact moment. And we take that same approach, let's move it to the workplace. How many times have you been exasperated with your employer? They don't seem fair, they don't seem reasonable, they seem capricious, and I loved that word. For many, many, many years, I thought I knew what capricious meant. I thought capricious was a synonym for malicious. It's not. You know what capricious means? Flip-flopping, changing your mind all the time. Today, one thing is what they want. Tomorrow, it's a different thing. And it may be contradictory to the thing they wanted yesterday. I know a lot of people who are capricious. You just learned a word. So we're frustrated and we're exasperated as a part of our daily experience. Now, let's take it one step further. How often have you been exasperated at the Lord? Where you feel and you think and you, dare I say, believe, even if you are too good of a Christian to dare say it, you think it or feel it. But how often are you exasperated because the Lord's demands just seem so unreasonable? The Lord is not doing what the Lord's supposed to do. Why is he going to bust my chops and demand worship and obedience and all this stuff for me when he's not going to fulfill his end of the deal? If he's going to be my God, well, then he better God for me. How many parents, I, I mean, I'm saying how many, but what I really mean is a lot of parents, they, they get so frustrated when their adult children grow up and walk away and they feel that they have been betrayed by God. 
I did what the Lord said to do and the Lord returns me with this? Or I live right and I get stricken with this? I'm trying to do the right thing and I'm doing all this stuff, blah, 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 and I get laid off and I can't even find work? Troubles and trials abound. Where is God? Why isn't he doing his thing? And in the meantime, he keeps busting my chops. Is that not sometimes how at least you're tempted to feel? Well, this is where the Lord is at. His people are wearied and they feel that they've been aggrieved. The, the, the interpretive verse in this passage that sets the emotional tone is verse 3. When God says, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Okay, so what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? That, that word wearied does not mean he's made them tired, that they're sincerely trying to serve the Lord and he's just slave driving them away. And they're just like, like donkeys under heavy loads and they're about to break. That's not what that word means, though it can. It doesn't mean that, that God is in his worship is just boring. No, they feel exasperated. And, and, and that word is translated in this, and we get the feeling of that if you use that, see how that same word is used by Micah's contemporary Isaiah. That same concept of being wearied, you see Isaiah use in, ver, in chapter 7, verse 13 of his book, right before that famous passage about the Lord himself is going to give us a sign. The virgin shall conceive. Okay, the verse right before it, 7.13, he has just told the king to, to, to make a request of God, to ask the, ask the Lord, and, and, and he won't. The king won't seek the Lord's help. So this is Isaiah's response in 7.13. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Okay, you see how that word is used there. It's very similar, exactly the same as it's being used here. The, God is asking the people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? How have I exasperated you and made you feel worn out with trying to meet my unreasonable demands? What have I done? And the people might be tempted to say, what have you done? Look at us. We're surrounded by our enemies. For years and years and years, we're just trying to do our own thing. And you keep busting our chops with these prophets. Never mind that doing their own thing for years and years and years involves complete repudiation of everything. Everything the Lord told them to be and do. So that's where the people are at. They think the Lord is unreasonable. They think he's unrealistic. Indeed, 
they think he's capricious. That they don't know what they need to do to get God off their back. And you see that in verse 6 and 7. It's incredible, this fourfold escalation. Understand this is not a sincere inquiry from a sincerely desirous worshiper who sincerely, genuinely wants to know. This is an expression of an exasperated person. What will it take to make you happy, God, to get you off my back, to get you to shut your mouth? You need to understand that tone when you read this verse. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And that word bow myself is not humble, reverential worship. It's, it's, it's a statement of abject humiliation. They see the worship of the Lord and, and bowing down as, as, as burdensome and bothersome and humiliating. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, calves a year old? Well, that's... Shall I... Will, will the Lord be pleased with, with thousands of rams? Is that what he wants? And then he takes it up even a further notch. With ten thousands of rivers of oil. Is that what it will take? Shall I give my firstborn son? Is that what the Lord wants? Now sadly, and aside human sacrifice had already happened at this point. And sadly, uh, future King Manasseh will normalize child sacrifice in Judah. Judah is the absolute worst, most wretched king in any of the kings of Israel or Judah combined. Of Judah, of Manasseh, it is said that he led his people to do more iniquity than all the nations who were before that the Lord had driven out. So understand they're exasperated, but, but human sacrifice here isn't really off the table. They're upset. Have you ever felt that way? Now, there is a strong pull in human religiosity to think in, along these lines. What will it take to make God happy? What do I got to do to get him off my back? What do I got to do to win his favor and approval? If I have to humiliate myself and sub subject myself to this abjection before him, okay, whatever. How, much, how big of a check do I got to write, God? How big of a sacrifice do I have to make to make you happy? That's where the people are. And the Lord has a cure. You find the cure in the two verbs of verse 5. Oh, my people. This is the second time he said that phrase. He says it first in verse 3. Oh, my people, how have I wronged you? And now he says in verse 5 again, Oh, 
my people. Do, do, do you hear the tone? This isn't the tone of a severe judge about to destroy. This is, this is the appeal of relational fracture that the Lord wants healed. The Lord here is seeking reconciliation with his people, hence the language of appeal rather than the language of condemnation. Oh, my people. But here in verse 5, he gives us two verbs. Remember, at the beginning of the verse, and then at the end of the verse, that you may know. Remember that you may know. And what is it that the Lord wants them to remember? Well, he, he says this. He wants them to remember all the words of verses 4 and 5. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Principally, the people need to remember that the Lord is the one who saved them. And that having saved them, he led them out and he provided all the leadership and the establishment of a system that they could possibly need. Moses, the great lawgiver, he's second only to Jesus in the importance in God's word. Aaron, the first high priest. And it may seem a little strange that he includes Miriam. Well, it's important to note that women have a place too. And she was a prophetess and an early worship leader in the, in the church. So she kind of sets the pattern here. The Lord gave all the leadership they needed. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. Now, this you can find in Numbers chapter 22 and through 24. And what Balak devised was, was according to the mindset of the culture in the day, a brilliant strategy. Looking out at the, at the hosts of Israel, this military force, he knew he couldn't compete. But... In that day and age, everything was perceived to be spiritual. Every war, every battle, everything like that was perceived as first and foremost a contest between deities. And the stronger God would win or would whatever. But Balak's strategy was not to get his God to beat up on their God no, Balak's strategy is, is, is really sharp. You know what would, what would make my burden cut in half? If, I mean, maybe just take care of it all together. If I can get their God to turn on them. If their God turns on them, then my God, all, all the heavy lifting is done. And victory is surely mine. 
So Balak devises to get the Lord to curse, renounce, and destroy the Lord's people. That's what he devised. You've had enemies before that not only wanted your destruction, but that actually sought my face to get me to do it. And the man he gets is this guy named Balaam. Uh, he's, a, he, he's a prophet for hire, so to speak. And he, as a hired gun, is willing to work for the highest payer. And he comes and he's like, well, I can only say what, 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 what this deity says. And in this case, it's Yahweh. And he says, what did Balaam say back? And we know this story. Every time Balaam, three times he goes before the Lord seeking to do what he's been hired to do, the Lord tells him, no, no, you, you bring back a word of blessing. And it, and it increasingly aggravates the guy who's hired him. I, I've hired you to curse these people and you're blessing them. Until finally, the third final oracle of Balaam's is so victorious. It in the near future, it announces the impending arrival of David. But looking down that site, you see it announced the arrival of the Messiah. So you've had enemies before that I protected you from while you were in the wanderings. And every time they sought to curse, I turned their curses back on them and gave you blessing. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? Well, that's drawing to mind all of the events surrounding the conquest. Shittim is the, the last place they camped before they went into conquest. And Gilgal is where they camp when they're done. And that whole period was noted and underscored by the tone of excitement. And what we hear at the, at the end of the conquest, after the land has been divided up, that all of the Lord's promises had been signed, sealed, and delivered. Not a single word of the Lord's promises had failed. Remember this, that you might know the righteous acts of God. Far from being a capricious, unreasonable tyrant of a deity, I have brought you only life and goodness, and I have been with you all your days. So if I could have been counted upon back then, surely you can turn to me and trust me now. The Lord's like that. You see it in the New Testament too. The Lord is always wanting us to remember that we may know. In the New Testament, we're repeatedly called upon to remember what he has done for us in Christ. And even to this day, the principal sign that God loves you is not that he has given you a wonderful spouse or beautiful children. The principal sign that God loves you is still, he sent his son to die for you. It's not that these present 
tense gifts aren't tangible signs of God's love. It's that the preeminent one is in the past. And God is a God who wants us to live by faith. So he is repeatedly orienting our perspective to what he has done so that as we face the situation of the now, we are armed with that as a basis for our faith. And in response to their frustrated claim that God is unreasonable, the Lord rebukes, rebuts by saying, He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? These frustrated, seemingly aggrieved, wayward worshipers indicate so by the sign of their tone and by their posture, where they think that their being asked to worship is a is it equal to them being asked to humiliate themselves and they speak arrogantly and haughtily and dare I say mockingly of the Lord and the way they frame their requests. And the prophet humbles them by reminding them of their place. He has shown you, O oh man, you are mortal. And he is not. He has shown you. Quit acting like you don't know. Quit acting like God is, is asking you to do ridiculous things. Quit acting as if the Lord is wanting you to do some sort of training scene from Mulan. Where you have to climb a mountain with a bucket of water in each hand, balanced on a pole uh, to win as a faith. God is not like that. Quit in your sinfulness making him out to be. The Lord's requirements are life-giving and culture-building. Contrast it with the absolute breakdown of society that's going on around him. Where people are being abused, discarded, chewed up like pieces of meat. And into that the Lord speaks. What does the Lord want except that you do justice? And of course that word is righteousness. Namely, we are to model our character on the character of God which we are told repeatedly, for example, from Moses in Deuteronomy, that all the Lord's ways are just, and he is a faithful God who does no wrong. We are called to, to model him in our behavior, to do justice. And that's the exact opposite of everything that's going on. Second, we're to love kindness, mercy, that's his said. And there are some people who try to put, to hear pit, mercy, and justice against each other. You know, justice is giving someone what they deserve, but mercy isn't. So, you know, no, that's, that's, he's not pitting anything against anything. 
In your behavior and ways, you are to conform yourself to God's character, to live and deal righteously with others. But our heart is to be like God's, to be one that delights in showing mercy and has compassion. And so when we come along a person who, who, who is suffering or is experiencing hardship, that we don't just callously turn away. And then finally, this addresses their whole tone and demeanor with which they've been approaching God. We are to walk humbly with our God. To walk, of course, is a metaphor throughout the Bible, which means to live our lives. We are to live our lives humbly. And that humility that we are to have in our relationship, in our, in our walk with the Lord, fundamentally comes from a place of recognizing his godness and of us recognizing our creatureliness. He is not just a bigger, stronger version of us. He is a different kind of being. And he is holy. And he is awesome. And we are finite, frail, and fragile. We can't see what's around the corner, much less what's coming ahead tomorrow. And he ordained the end from the beginning. He knows all. He's with all regardless of whether you're here or in Germany or in China. He's with because he's omnipresent. And there's no force or combination of forces that can thwart his will. Because he's omnipotent. And yet we, we, we're brought low by the tiniest of microorganisms, are we not? We are fragile. But yet we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So the Lord... He says, in essence, to his people, snap out of it. You're walking around feeling exasperated. You're all huffy, you're irritable, and you're, you're just in a bad mood, and, you, and you've rejected my, me and my ways because you think that I've done you wrong, but I haven't. I've only done you right. And any of the bad stuff that you've experienced has only come because you've rejected me and walked away. But the Lord's delight is to restore and to reconcile. So, so turn to me. I haven't asked you to, to shoot an arrow through a gold coin a quarter mile. I've asked you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before me. Brothers and sisters, the cure for our exasperation when we feel it, when we experience it, is to remember and know. To remember what the Lord has done for us. To know with clarity the realism of what he expects of us. And in so doing, we walk in a manner that gives glory to him and finds him to be satisfying. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for how you address 
our sense of grievance, our sense of exasperation with the real, realism of what you have done for us and what you expect of us. We ask, O oh God, that you would give us the grace to turn from our sins, to turn from our blasphemous and improper thoughts that we might know and think and reason and believe and feel truly. And we ask in everything, O oh God, that we would give you thanks because you don't require us to give your, our firstborn sons. You gave yours. We thank you, Jesus, for being willing to take our place, that we might have peace. We pray this all in the name of our Lord. Amen.